Hello and welcome to this Advent talk from Hersham Baptist Church. We're getting ourselves ready for Christmas here and we're doing so by thinking about the theme of hope. My name is Phil, I'm the pastor of the church here. It's great to have you with us. We're really excited, we're going to be back meeting in person from this Sunday, so do come and join us and look out for our other Christmas videos coming up this December. Each week we've been thinking about a different aspect of the hope we have at Christmas time by looking at what Isaiah, a man from several hundred years before Jesus' birth, predicted Jesus would be like. And this week, our theme is the hope of forgiveness and healing for our souls. So here's my lunchtime summary. Christmas promises us forgiveness and healing for our souls. Christmas promises us forgiveness and healing for our souls. Forgiveness and healing for our souls. I was thinking about this theme this week and my mind uh, went to my uh, great passion in life, which is watching football, and particularly Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. Uh, As I record this, Tottenham are top of the league and I am uh, absolutely overjoyed by that. Although my natural pessimism as a Spurs supporter leads me to believe that by the time it goes out, we probably will have come off the top. One of the highlights of an otherwise pretty depressing year was taking my sons to the brand new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium uh, up in Edmonton in London. It was a great experience pre-pandemic to enter this beautifully crafted world, this kind of cathedral uh, to sporting brilliance. Unfortunately, the game did not go as well as the rest of the trip. Tottenham may be top of the league as I record this. I can't remember if I've said that already, but uh, Tottenham are top of the league as I record this. But at that time, it was very different. The team didn't look great, not like now when Tottenham are top of the league. They were struggling to score or even keep the ball. There was no discernible shape to their play. It didn't look like there was a plan. No one looked like they knew what they were doing. The crowd around us, in the midst of all of the extraordinary engineering of the stadium, were growing restless. Each one of us uh, felt that we knew what needed to happen. My own sons knew what needed to happen. We could all see it. Someone needed to get control of the game. Someone needed to keep the ball. Someone needed to pass through the opponent's defence or run with it and make progress. Everyone knew what was needed, but none of us could do anything about it. I stopped and I reflected this week on why that was. We were all helpless, all 70,000 of us, for two reasons. First of all, we weren't present. We were stuck in the crowd. There was no way we could get on the pitch to do something about the game. Second, we were powerless. We weren't present and we had no power. Even if we had somehow got to be allowed on the pitch, we didn't have the strength, the ability or the power to do anything that needed to be done in footballing terms. To use an illustration, Spurs needed someone like this. When they looked at me, all I could offer was this. Have it. Oh, yes. 
point I'm making is this. Knowing what we should do is important. But for someone to be able to help, they have to be both present, where the problem is, and powerful to do something about it. This is exactly what Isaiah predicts about Jesus in the Advent reading we've been thinking about. So, I've got my Bible here. Let's read together from Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when they're dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot that's used in battle and every garment that's been rolled in blood will be destined for burning. There'll be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Mighty God. That's what we're thinking about today. He will be called Mighty God. In the passage we've just read, Isaiah talks about this child, about Jesus. Not only as a human being, a son will be born to us, but also as mighty God. In other words, Isaiah says, there's going to be someone born who will be human, a child, but also divine, God with us. More than that, Isaiah says, he's God come not only to be present with us, but come with power to save us. Literally, God will come as a warrior to fight for us. It's so important. We need someone to come to us who is both present with us and powerful to save us. Otherwise, we are left knowing what we should do, but unable to do anything about it. Now this works out in three ways in Jesus' life and his teaching and his death and his resurrection. First, Jesus is God fighting for our forgiveness. Jesus is God with us fighting for our forgiveness. Every one of us does stuff that's wrong. We all know it. You might not be a religious person. I know that uh, there are many people who watch these videos who might not be sure about what they think. You might not agree with everything Jesus says, and certainly not with everything the church says. Yet I suspect that each one of us, whether we would describe ourselves as Christians or not, are aware of times when the words we use, our thoughts, our deeds, cause us to regret. There are times when pride, when anger, when selfishness, greed, or distorted desire cause us to hurt ourselves or others in ways that we know, perhaps inexplicably, but irresistibly nonetheless, to be wrong. That's what the Bible calls sin. 
Now, that's an old-fashioned word. It's not one that many people use anymore. So the writer and journalist Francis Spufford summarised it in a, in a neat way. He uses more uh, vivid language than this. But for a Sunday morning audience, he describes it as the human propensity to mess things up. The human propensity to mess things up. And particularly relationships with the world, with others and with God. It harms us and uh, and others. This human propensity to, to mess up our world breaks our relationship with God and with other people. It leaves us carrying a burden of guilt and shame. And we don't like guilt and shame. We like to say, well, it doesn't matter. You don't need to feel guilty about that. But if I'm honest with myself, this is guilt and shame that I genuinely deserve. I should feel guilty about some of the things I've said or done. They were wrong and they hurt people. We need help with this. We need help from someone who is both one of us and yet more than us. Who's both human and divine. Who's both present and powerful. This is exactly who Jesus is. This is exactly who Jesus is. When he lived and he died and he rose again, Jesus took the consequences of all of our actions. He took our guilt and our shame, that burden each one of us carries, and offers us complete forgiveness and cleansing. So how does this work? I really struggle to understand how the death of Jesus could have made a difference to my life. Someone explained it to me like this, using a verse in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 3, 53 and verse 6, which says this, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. And the person explaining it said this, said, Let this hand represent you and me, and let this book represent all the things that you and I have done wrong. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The things that we do wrong cut us off from God. We see that they cause a partition between us and God. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, never did anything wrong. He lived a pure life. There was always a perfect relationship between him and his Father in heaven. He's the only person who's ever lived 100% pure life. What the verse says is, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And it goes on to say this, but the Lord, that is God, has laid on him that is, on Jesus Christ, on the cross, the iniquity of us all. What Jesus was doing on the cross was bearing my sin and your sin instead of you and me. But do you see where that leaves us, you and me? We're free to have a relationship with God. So Jesus offers us forgiveness. But he doesn't only offer us forgiveness. He's, he's powerful and he's present, not only to forgive what we've done in the past, but to heal us and free us from the soul sickness that underlies it. Now that's really, really important. In some ways, that's the most important. It's sin, the human propensity to mess things up, particularly relationships. It's like a slow disease eating away at us. You might find that overwrought, perhaps, but think of it like this. The second cruel word is much easier to say than the first. 
The fourth or fifth are easier still. There is something wrong in my heart that causes me to do the things that I do. And I'm powerless to do anything about it. I can't fundamentally alter who I am. I can't alter this this propensity to mess things up. Jesus came to change exactly that. To present a divine cure to a very human disease. Jesus is a divine cure to a very human disease. How does this work out? Well, let's read what uh, Jesus' earliest followers thought about it. This is St. Paul writing uh, to one of his churches, one of the churches he founded. And he talks about Jesus in this way, reading from Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. Jesus, he says, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him, for all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now Paul's a man of many words, and he's using those words here to say what Isaiah says. So Isaiah described Jesus as mighty God, and Paul is, is, is explaining what that means. Everything is from him and for him and in him, and he's the firstborn from among the dead. He's the one who everything looks towards. He's mighty God. And what does mighty God do about our soul sickness? Well, Paul goes on to tell us in verse 20. Through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. In other words, Paul's describing the soul sickness. We think bad stuff, we do bad stuff. That leads us to think more bad stuff, to do bad stuff. And that breaks our relationship with God and with others. But now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. That word holy means complete, pure. Without blemish. And free from accusation. To use contemporary language, the disease has gone. What amazing words, what an amazing promise. And maybe you could think, well, that was 2,000 years ago. What has that got to do with me? But it's still happening today. I got in with the wrong crowd and I started to um, pinch cars, burgle houses, uh, become known, me and my friends become known as very high-profile thieves, really. I used to carry big knives, uh, the, the big knives to the smaller knives down my waist, and I was the kind of person where if you pulled a knife out, I would use it. I ended up stabbing someone in the head. I ended up um, stabbing someone just missing his heart and going through the top of his shoulder, uh, the, the top of his chest and his shoulder away. He dropped to the floor, and so I was on the run for two attempted murders. And then I was just... 
when I went to prison, I had such a hatred for the system and I couldn't handle being told what to do, couldn't handle prison officers mucking me about. When I went out on association, I got to prison officer and I, uh, I stabbed him. And then this led to me going into maximum security prisons, being put on CSC. It's where they feed you through a hatch in the door. There's no physical contact, so they have to have ride shields and ride gear on. Um, and that was my life for a long, long time, basically. And I, I just was going from prison to prison, prison to prison. But then I ended up going to Long Larton in Worcestershire. And when I was in there, I ended up going in an Alpha course. Never heard of an Alpha course, didn't know anything. And I just remember walking in because they'd sent me down. I sat down on a chair and I thought, oh no, it's a Christian thing. And we'd just go there every week and I would argue. And the pastor, um, I remember he come to me. He said, right, I'm going to say a few scriptures first before we pray. And one of them was, no one's righteous, not one. We all fall short of the glory of God. And then he said the verses about Jesus and explained a bit why he died on the cross for sinners and stuff. And then he said, pray. So I started praying. And I said, uh, God... I said, God, if you're real, come into my life because I hate who I am. And nothing happened. But then, as I was talking to the pastor, I started to feel this energy feeling in my stomach. And it started to raise up and raise up and raise up and raise up. And I just broke out into uncontrollable um, tears. And I just sobbed. <clears throat> and I just... Right there. Because that was a change in my whole life. I knew God was real. Um, and no one will change that now. And then I remember <laughs> running on the wing. People clearly knew that I would become a Christian. So I actually helped them on another two Alpha courses. And then I, um, I got released. I've been in a prison where I... Because you would have thought that the prison where I stopped the prison officers would have been the last prison to have me. But they were the first. That's how God works. The best thing for me is going in prisons and helping the lads in prison and, and trying to tell them about God. I've got um, four kids and then my life. Um, and what upsets me is because now I know um, that back then, if I had the kids, uh, they wouldn't have had a good upbringing. And now they sit on the night and have Bible studies with their dad. Um, <clears throat> have Bible studies with a dad, have a life, the beautiful, um, and my life, and it's probably it's my wife and my kids are the best gift, that, apart from the grace God's given me, is the best gift I've ever, he'll ever give me. Didn't expect to cry like that. Recovered now. So Jesus isn't just a wonderful counsellor a great teacher with the wisest, most beautiful and powerful words to live by, he's God himself present with us and powerful to forgive us and heal us. He's like an amazing Christmas gift that we've been offered and asked to unwrap and make our own. Now, there's one final part of this gift that we haven't considered. Jesus is both powerful and present to give us new life. It's sobering to think about death at Christmas. No one likes to do that. 
Yet it's vital, particularly in this of all years, that we're realistic about the human condition. Death is coming. There might be a vaccine now, but it won't last forever. Sooner or later, it will come for us all. If Jesus really is the mighty God that was predicted so long before his birth, then he holds the power of life and death in his hands. And he offers life to all who will come to him for it. Once, the story is told, Jesus came to a grieving friend, mourning the untimely and sudden loss of her brother. And he spoke these extraordinary words. I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Big words. Shortly after, he would make good on them. He raised his friend back to life with a single word of his mouth. And then he himself was killed. And hundreds and hundreds saw him alive again. It's a gift that transformed the world. The world is unrecognisable. And it's because of Jesus. It's a gift that no one else can provide. And it's offered to each one of us. Not on the basis that we have been nice and not naughty. But on the basis that each one of us is naughty and needs forgiveness and healing. If you've never responded to Jesus, if you've never said yes to the gift, yes to forgiveness, yes to healing, yes to life, then this Christmas is the perfect time. Acknowledge you need him, confess you believe him, and follow him in baptism. You'll receive the the greatest Christmas gift anyone could ever offer. Christmas promises us forgiveness and healing for our souls. Stay with us for communion.